0: Amen. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate you, man. Great. So how are we doing? Good. Y'all doing all right? Ready to go? All right. Oh, maybe one person. Jason's ready to go. Uh, hey, Alan is on vacation this week, just sitting, working on his tan at the beach. So we're going to be here. I'm going to be preaching, diving into God's word. And I'm excited to do that. And I love preaching God's word. And so it's a privilege and a joy to be here. And so we're going to be continuing in our series that you guys know we've been in. Uh, King Jesus. It's not up there right now. I thought it was there. That's okay. And so what we've been looking at as we've been in this series is basically what it means to live under the lordship and the kingship of Christ in our lives. And what it means that we, as his covenant people, are anticipating his kingdom and investing and building in, seeking to multiply his kingdom. And I I feel like I've loved this series uh, because it has allowed us to really lay a fresh foundation uh, for who we are in Christ and also what we are called uh, to do as, again, we live under the kingship of Christ. And so for today, uh, what I want to do is to continue to build off of what Alan preached on last week. So we've been making these theological statements throughout the whole series um, that essentially have helped us to, to orient us on who we are and, again, what we're called to be doing. And our theological statement from last week was this. We'll put this on the screen. Last week, we said that Jesus gives of himself to show me the way of the kingdom, right? So Jesus comes, he humbles himself, he dies on a cross, he serves us, he offers us new life, and then he tells that we're going to be his ambassadors for his namesake, working to establish and to multiply his kingdom on earth. And this is obviously, uh, this is great news, as we all know. But Alan also shared last week that following Jesus sometimes comes oftentimes, always comes at a cost, right? Jesus bore the burden of our sin and we come to faith by him, but we are also called to follow our savior in discipleship and walking in his footsteps, modeling his love and trying to show his self-sacrificing nature in, in, in light of the work that he has done in our lives. And so the reality is, is that because of the world that we live in, because the world that we live in is fallen, and it seeks to glorify itself, that means that following Jesus is going to be hard, right? It's going to be difficult. There will be a cost to living counter to the way that the world operates. And so Alan highlighted this. The question then becomes, why would I do that? Why would I lay down everything to follow Jesus as he commands us? Why would I lay down my agenda, my desires, my dreams, my aspirations, even to follow Christ? Why would I do this? And I think uh, if most of us are honest with ourselves, for most of us in here, that question tends to nag us a little bit, right? And we sometimes ask the question man, is, is following Jesus really worth it? And does it really lead to true and everlasting joy? Is that true? And so this is what we want to focus on today. Focus on this question of, does following Jesus truly lead to everlasting joy? And so to answer that, uh, our primary text for today is going to be Psalm chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We're also going to have it on the screen for you. But go ahead and turn there, Psalm 16. And and here's the plan for today. Here's what we're going to do. So we're going to read through the Psalm. And as we do, we're going to identify three promises uh, three promises that I think the, the psalmist makes very clear to us. And I'm convinced that these three promises, when we hide them in our heart, when we remember them, when we memorize them, when we cling to them, I'm convinced that, this will, that these promises will lead us into deep and abiding joy as we follow Christ, especially when things get hard, when life uh, gets difficult, when following Jesus is hard. So we'll look at our three promises in Psalm 16. And then what I want us to do in light of these three promises is really look at how these promises manifest themselves in real life. And so in order to do that, uh, I think there's probably no better person to look at in the Bible uh, than the Apostle Paul. All throughout the New Testament, we see Paul following Jesus in, most, for the most part of his life, very difficult circumstances, life-threatening circumstances. And yet he has joy and he still serves the church faithfully. So we'll look at our three promises in Psalm 16 and then we'll look at some parallel passage of how Paul exemplifies and lives out and carries out even how he clings to these promises and I think that'll be a good model for us. Uh, So that's it, that's where we're gonna be headed. Uh, Let's get going, I'm gonna read Psalm 16 and I'm actually gonna pick us up in verse five. So Psalm chapter 16, verse five. And it says this. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Love that language. I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I will always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence, there is abundant joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. Eternal pleasures. And so we mentioned our theological statement from last week, and this, uh, at this moment, I want to put on the screen our theological statement for this week, and that is this, that true joy is found exclusively in following Jesus. True joy is found exclusively in following after Jesus. And so with that, uh, we're going to break this psalm into three sections, and each section will represent one of those promises that we're going to dig into. And so we're going to go ahead and do that now. So we're going to look at our first promise, and we're going to pick it back up in verses. uh, We'll look at verses 5 and 6 for this first promise. So let me read verses 5 and 6 again for us. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And our first promise is this that we're going to focus on. There's joy in following Jesus because in him we have everything we need. There's joy in following Jesus because in him we have everything that we need. And so the psalmist clearly believes this, right? He says, verse five Lord, you are my portion. You're my cup of blessing. So we see this language of food, uh, which is powerful imagery, right? All of us can attest to when we enjoy a good, full, rich meal with good food and good drink. Man, it's, it's satisfying when we've tasted that sustenance. We feel full. We feel good. We've received what we needed. So he says that. But the psalmist also says, Lord, you hold my future. So the blessing and the satisfaction that's promised It doesn't stop. He actually talks about how that same blessing, that satisfaction is gonna keep coming. The Lord is going to sustain him. He's gonna keep sustaining us. It is a beautiful promise. Verse six talks about how the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So, right, imagine if you're building a house, you have to mark out the boundary line of where the foundation is gonna go and the framing and all that. And so the psalmist is acknowledging that what the Lord is building or preparing for him is Pleasant. It is good. I have a beautiful inheritance that the Lord is preparing for me, and the psalmist is confident in this. So we see right here that the Lord is our provider. And the psalmist uses the analogies of both food and inheritance uh, to communicate this promise to us that, that we can have real joy because in Him we have everything that we need. So there's the promise right there, verses five and six. And now I wanna look at how this promise brings us real joy in our lives when we cling to it. And again, as I said, uh, I think Paul exemplifies this. So y'all can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter four. Go ahead and turn there. We actually don't have these uh, kind of extra verses on the screen. So go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter four and a little bit of context to this passage. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, uh, but he's in prison, right? So he's in shackles, he's in chains, And he's writing to encourage, even though he's the one in prison, he's writing to encourage the Philippian church and to remind them to have joy in God. And so I want to read this passage for us. Philippians chapter 4, we'll do verses 10 to 13. Let's look at this together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you, Philippians, renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether I'm in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, you know my son Levi is two years old. You guys have probably seen him running around here, and Levi loves cookies. Right, a little bit of a cookie monster, and uh, man, sometimes he'll wake up from his nap and he'll say cookie, cookie. You know he's he's ready to go, ready for the cookies. Or even sometimes we're down on the main level just hanging out, and he will literally walk to our pantry, even though he can't he can't open it. He'll just hang on the doorknob and just yell cookie, right? He'll he say cookies, cookies. And so the kid loves cookies. He loves them. And so what we discovered is that many times during dinner, if he's not eating or he doesn't want to eat whatever we put in front of him, if we tell him, hey, buddy, if you eat your cookie, or if you, if you eat your dinner, you can have a cookie, that's, that's what we tend to do, right? So we give him this promise, and usually when we tell him that, man, he will find all the perseverance and all the joy that he needs to plow through his dinner with a smile on his face because he is excited about that cookie, right? So he's focused on the promise of the cookie, Because for him, that's what he needs, even though it's, you know, cookie. And so like Paul, Levi is able to do all things through that cookie, which strengthens him, (laughs) right? His joy is set on the cookie, and so suddenly, eating his carrots or his broccoli or whatever he doesn't want to eat, doing that which is hard for him is easy. And so this is exactly what we see of Paul in Philippians, right? He's in prison. He's suffering in chains. He is following Christ faithfully, and yet he's able to have joy and to be content. Right, he says, Philippian church, I've learned the secret of being content and of having joy, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, abundance or need, it doesn't matter. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I love that verse 13 right there because it actually ties us back to Psalm 16, what the psalm says when we talk about how there's joy in following Jesus because in him we have everything that we need. Paul is able to follow Jesus faithfully because he knows that his strength comes from the Lord and that what God gives him, don't miss this, what God gives him is what will bring him true sustenance. And he knows this. And not only does he have joy for himself, but I love this, he's able to then encourage others in their joy. He's reminding the Philippians, hey, Philippians, trust Jesus, follow him and have joy because He gives us everything that we need. There's joy in following Jesus because in him, we have everything that we need. So back to Psalm 16, we'll look at our next promise in verses 7 and 8. Let me read this for us. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me, right? So he's in dismay. I will let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And so our second promise is this. There's joy in following Jesus because he is always with us. He is always with us, right? The psalmist says that he's going to bless the Lord who brings him counsel, which to offer a blessing basically means to live in, uh, just to have a spirit of thanks, to live in remembrance of what God has done for him. And that he's going to bless the Lord even in the night when his thoughts trouble him when it's hard. He says, I'm gonna let the Lord guide me. So we see this incredible picture of trust and of following. And then lastly, verse eight, we see uh, this really good summarizing statement for this section where it says, because he is at my right hand, because he's right here, I will not be shaken, right? Because he is with me, he is present. I won't be moved. What's important to note about the statement here, though, as we look at this, is that, Everything that's mentioned in verses 7 and 8 is made possible because of God's presence in the psalmist's life, right? So verse 7, psalmist would not receive counsel from the Lord in the darkness of night when he was troubled if God were not there with him. Verse 8, the psalmist wouldn't be led and guided by the Lord if God was not present, leading him. And the reason that he's not shaken, church, when things get hard, when the darkness of night falls, and when he is troubled, is because God is with him. Uh, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, right on the ocean. We grew about 10 minutes from the beach. Great place to grow up. And so we were at the beach all the time. And as, when I was really little, uh, you know, I was pretty scared of the ocean, big waves and like storms and potential sea creatures. So I was pretty nervous about that. But man, when my, often, oftentimes my dad would bring me out into the water and when he would carry me out into the ocean, into the water, uh, there was no fear. There was no sense that the waves could, could take me under. There was no sense that a sea creature or something would get me. There was no sense of even clouds blowing in that a storm would come. Because I was with my dad, because he was present, it made all the difference. The psalmist knew this and Paul knew it as well. Go ahead and turn to Acts 18. I want to look at this promise again, lived out in Paul's life and ministry. A little bit of context here. Paul's in Corinth in this part of Acts 18, and he's up to this point already experienced a good amount of persecution leading up to this point. So he's here, he's living, he's doing ministry, he's serving. I'm going to pick it up for us in uh, Acts 18, verse 9. So Paul is actually asleep, and the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Paul, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. I love that. And so he stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul was there ministering in Corinth to these people for a year and a half, loving them, Training them, equipping them, serving them, and, and honestly, guys, what we learn from the rest of Scripture is that the Corinthian church was probably the most difficult church that Paul had under his care that he shepherded. In his letters written to the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, uh, we learn that there was a lot of various sin and infighting within the congregation, and we even see uh, that at one point the Corinthian church rejected Paul as their apostle and as their leader. They actually turn on him. It's really sad which is totally ridiculous, right? He loved these Corinthians for a year and a half and then they just turn on him, they reject him. And so Paul could have said, hey man, I'm gonna wipe my hands with y'all, I'm done. You guys have rejected me, fine. That would have been very tempting. And this is a moment where following Jesus for Paul would have been very hard. And yet Paul has joy and it doesn't discourage him. In fact, what he says to the, Corinthians, and, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter seven is this. He says, great is my confidence in you, Corinthians. Great is my boasting on your behalf and I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. So he still sees himself as in the trenches with them. He's still loving them. He still wants to serve them. Not only does Paul still have joy in following Jesus, he's still trying to encourage the Corinthians in their joy, just like the Philippians, right? He's trying to lift them up despite the fact that they turned on him. And I can't help but think, church, that what enabled Paul to do this well, what enabled him to be so faithful, was what Jesus said to him in Acts 18 in that dream, where he says, Paul, don't be afraid, for I am with you. And I have many people in this city, people that are lost, people that have no hope, and Paul, I'm going to use you to give it to them. So trust me and follow me. So there's joy in following Jesus because he is always with us. It's our second promise. And then one last time, we're gonna head back to Psalm 16. And we'll finish our passage uh, in verse nine. So I'll read this for us. Verses nine to 11. This is my favorite part. The psalmist says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. Again, that's Hades, the place of the dead. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. And here it is, my favorite verse. You reveal the path of life to me, In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And so our third truth, our third promise is this. There's joy in following Jesus because he relentlessly seeks our good. He is relentless in his desire for us to have good things in him. Where do we see this? Verse 9. He says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body is secure. Why? Because, Lord, I know that you won't abandon me to Sheol, being the place of the dead again. So he's confident that death is not his lot and that he won't see decay. In fact, what the psalmist has been promised is quite The opposite, and he revels in this. Instead of death, the Lord has revealed to him the path that leads to life. The psalmist knows that it's in God's presence where abundant joy is found. And then at his right hand, the hand of the Father who loves to give to his children, who loves to bless us, is where we find eternal pleasure. There's joy in following Jesus because he relentlessly seeks our good. And so one last time, I want to look to Paul at how he exemplifies this truth for us. So uh, turn with me to the book of Titus. Book of Titus, towards the end, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. That's kind of where it is there. And a bit of context on Titus. So Titus is a faithful brother serving with Paul, doing all that good stuff. And Paul uh, decides to leave him on the island of Crete, which is a big island right there in the Mediterranean. And Paul leaves him there. And the reason that Paul leaves him is to basically just advance the gospel, right? So plant churches, make disciples, all that good stuff. Uh, the problem is Crete is very difficult soil, very difficult soil. So Paul even says to Titus in his letter, you all can go back and read this. Uh, listen to what Paul says of the Cretan people, right? He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, detestable, Disobedient and unfit for any good work. I mean, put that in your missionary brochure, right? You're not going to get any any signups from that. But in all seriousness, Paul knows, man, I've got to encourage this guy. Uh, He's going to a hard place, and here's how he does it. So Titus is called a pastoral letter, and it gives us a lot of instruction on how basically to lead a church, how to appoint elders, how to care and shepherd a congregation well. So it's all that. But interspersed throughout the letter of Titus, Paul injects these little encouragements uh, that he knows through experience will solidify Titus' joy in following Jesus and enabling him to to serve the Cretan people well. So I want to look at just some of these little little encouraging passages that Paul kind of works in there so that Titus will have joy, and just to remind him who we are and what we're, what we're doing. So the first one we see in chapter one of Titus, verses one and two, right off the bat, this is how he starts the book. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. So Paul's saying right off the bat, hey, Titus, don't forget, man, we have a hope of eternal life that is coming, that God has promised to us, Titus. This is a really good thing that God has promised us. Don't forget it. Our next encouragement that he gives is in chapter two, verse 11. He says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's good news. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for this blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to cleanse for us, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So Paul again says, okay, hey, Titus, man, I know you're tempted to get bogged down by these gluttonous, uh, selfish Cretans. They're difficult. But man, we're loving this difficult people. We are faithfully following Jesus because God has brought salvation to us because he has given us a blessed hope. He's given us his son, Jesus. He's gonna redeem us from lawlessness and he's gonna cleanse us and make us even his own possession, adopting us into his family. Titus, don't forget this. You've gotta remember how good God has been to us in order to have joy as you serve these Cretans. And the last one, chapter three, verse four. Love the language here. But when the kindness of God, I always love it when the scripture uses that term. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly, not a little bit, abundantly. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So, again, hey, Titus, remember God's kindness in saving us, and not because we did anything special, but just because He is awesome, because He is amazing. He's regenerating us, he's washing us, he's making us new, he's given us the spirit. He's even made us heirs, heirs of a promise, heirs of an eternal blessing that is coming. Titus, you've got to remember how good God has been to us and then let that goodness flow through you to these wicked Cretans because they're lost and they need hope. They need to experience the goodness of God in the same way that we have. So there's joy in following Jesus because he relentlessly seeks our good. Psalm 16, where we've spent most of our time today, is actually a song uh, that you might have noticed at the top. It's written by David. And so this is the same David who would eventually go on to be king of Israel, but uh, he's not king yet. He's not king yet when he writes this psalm, and he's actually far from it. Uh, In fact, most scholars believe that David is in one of two places as he writes this song. He's either A, in in prison in Philistia, captured by his enemies in shackles, or B, he's in a cave in the wilderness on the run from King Saul who is trying to kill him because he's jealous of him. And so Psalm 16 is actually considered to be a psalm of lament. So David is lamenting. He's hard-pressed in his circumstances, which which are not easy. But he's following what God has asked him to do. He's walking in faith in the path that the Lord has laid out For him, So it's hard, it's cold, he's probably hungry, it's not easy, it's difficult, but he has joy, as we see from the language that he uses. He has an eternal joy that comes from what God has promised to him, that God is his provider, that God is with him, and that God always seeks what is best, what is good for David. And I think, guys, what's so cool as we look at this is that a thousand years after the life of David, we see these same promises still delivering. We see these same promises still proving to be true in the life of Paul, sustaining him, bringing him joy, and enabling him to be faithful in what God has called him to. So, as awesome as these stories are, David, Paul, these incredible examples, you know, I think sometimes we still have the tendency to look at the men and the women of the Bible and think, man, these stories are great, I love them. But, of course, they're incredible stories, right? It's the Bible. It wouldn't really sell if it was just a bunch of lame stories. So, of course, like Nick, that's, they have to be cool. And there's this temptation, I think, to feel like what we read in the Bible is really just different. It's divorced from us, and we're not going to have, have the same experience in our present reality, right? We appreciate it, but we wonder if it's actually going to be true from us, right? Going back to our first question, is it actually going to bring me joy? Does this actually work And so because that is our tendency, and we all have that in us, that's okay. I also want to share with you about a woman uh, named Helen. And Helen is a lot today. She's from the country of Eritrea, which is in the Middle Middle East. And I found a video. I'm not going to show you guys the video. I'm just going to read the transcript. If you want the video, email me. I can send it to you. Uh, But this came from the the website Voice of the Martyrs, which focuses on uh, really just raising awareness around Christian persecution all over the world. And so Helen's alive today, she's middle-aged, and honestly, if she, if, if, if she walked in today at Grace Hill, nobody would think anything of it. She looks like just a normal person, she was dressed normal in the video, she was friendly, and we would greet her here at Grace Hill with a bulletin and a cup of coffee, and we wouldn't think anything of it, right? But I wanna share her testimony and read her story for us here today. Uh, keep in mind her English isn't great, But as I read her story, keep an eye out for how similar Helen's language is to the language of David and Paul. So so notice this. So I'll I'll read her story. A little bit of background. Helen was imprisoned inside a shipping container for two years in her native Eritrea for sharing her faith in Jesus and for refusing to, to deny him to the authorities. So this is the story of how she found strength and joy in the face of evil. So I'm going to quote from Helen now. She says this, The reason they arrested me was because I was preaching the gospel on the streets and everywhere. Because as Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God. So it's our responsibility to preach the gospel everywhere. And that's why they arrested me. Because it's my responsibility to preach the gospel for the people who don't know Jesus. The Masawa prison where I was held is the worst place because the shipping containers where we were held Have a small window so you don't have enough air. It's very cold at night, very hot during the day. Remember, Eritrea is a desert country in the Middle East, so they they experience those extreme temperature fluctuations. You can't lie down in the container. It's just all of us in the middle right there. Uh, They call what they give us food, but it's very poor food that they give us, so most of us uh, were sick and had stomach issues. Also, you freeze at night because there's not, not enough air. There's no toilet, just a sanitary packet that you use for the night. And they tortured me more than anybody else in our area, I can say, because they used me as an example. When new people came, they would torture me to threaten those new people. So they used me a lot for this type of torture. Eventually, they tortured me so bad that they thought I was dead because I was unconscious for some time. So my health situation got really bad. So they decided to send me to a hospital. And after that, they eventually sent me home. But there are many who die from this kind of torture. And you're kind of between in the middle of life and death. But God kept me alive to tell the truth about what's happening to the prisoners in Eritrea. And that's why I'm alive. When I was in prison, God's presence was always with us. We prayed three times a day during the night, or during the day and then three times at night. So we're always just constantly in the presence of God celebrating. And when you're always in the presence of God, you see new things every day. You see what God is doing. I saw this until I left the prison. God loves me, and that's why he put me in this situation. When I was there, the prisoners asked me, what, what can we do? And I told them, we just need to sing, because in Acts 16.25, when, and and pa- when Paul and Silas were in prison, they just started singing, and the prison door started shaking. I love that faith. So I told them, we just need to sing. We don't have everything right now, but we can sing, because God has given us life. And so we rejoiced. So we need more people to pray about Eritrea because for many years it has continued like this. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. So that's why we have this responsibility to pray and to support financially and to send letters of encouragement to these people who are suffering. And so that's her story. And as I read that, Grace Hill, I can't help but think how reminiscent this is of what we see in David and Paul. Right, Helen and Paul Both knew that they had to preach the gospel and that they needed to share this message of hope no matter the cost. David, Paul, and Helen all affirmed God's presence in the midst of following him. Helen says that because they are constantly in God's presence, they were able to see God doing new things, just as David and Paul were able to see beyond their difficult circumstances to what the Lord was doing. Helen at one point says, God loves me, and that's why he put me in this situation to testify to his power. Helen says that God is the one who gives life, just as David declared that God reveals the path of life to him. And we see Helen singing in prison, praising God. We see Paul and Silas singing in prison, praises to the Lord. And we see David penning this beautiful song, Psalm 16, in the midst of his persecution. And so these are these are three people from three very different cultures. And yet their language is so similar because it's the same God working through them. It's the same Holy Spirit ministering through these people to accomplish his purposes and to bring them joy and sustain them in the process. And so, church, here we are thousands of years later, and we see David, and we see Paul, and we see Helen all experiencing these same promises and the fruit that comes from them that scripture gives us. There is joy in following Jesus because he gives us what we need. He's our provider. Because he is with us, he's present. And because he is relentless in his desire to give us good things. And so if these promises, church, were were good enough for Grace Hill, for David and for Paul and for Helen, then they're certainly good enough for us. And so let's make it, our responsibility to, to learn these promises, to cling to the promises of God, knowing that they bring life, that they bring joy, that they sustain us, that they enable us to persevere well. Let's learn these promises together, Grace so, because this is what will bring us deep, abiding joy as we follow our Savior together. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in the fact that there is joy in following you, that as the psalmist says, God, you make known to us the path that leads to life. And so I pray for us right now that we would truly believe that. God, that you, by your Spirit's power, you would give us eyes to see that that is true and that is right and that is good. And that even when it's hard, Lord, as we pursue you in obedience and in faithfulness, God, man, we can can trust, because this is what you've been doing for thousands of years now. We can trust that you'll be faithful to your children because you sustain us, God. You're with us. You provide for us, and you desire to give us good things. And so, Lord, we cling to that truth this morning. We cling to you. We ask that you would show up in our lives in a way that, enables us to see this truth, these promises as really true and is really good. Father, we pray that we would understand this truth as a church body collectively and that we would be quick to encourage one another in this. Encouraging one another in the fact that we have life in Jesus and that life is found in no one else apart from you. Lord, would you help us in this? Lord, we give you all the glory, and I pray that we would now sing as a response to the life that we have in you. Amen.